to Shaken and Disturbed, everybody. This is Darren Carp on the hot mic with John Thrasher giving a little dance party to our sussy radishes and those who are able to see our video feed right now. We always do something with our hands, like we have to Vogue. I know, I don't um, know why I do that. For those who don't listen to NMR, uh, well, we are back. and we had to take We had to take a quick break last week because I was at BravoCon and... Some iconic stuff happened, but listen to NMR for all the <laughs> recap there. But uh, I literally lost my voice for about four days, so I couldn't record. But we're back in the saddle, and I'm glad to see you, Johnny Boy. I am too. You know, we kind of we recorded the NMR before we're recording this episode, but I want to say it here again. I was just saying on NMR, you know, it's always nice to take a little bit of a break, especially when we're both super busy with other work. But uh, you know, getting back in the saddle with you, it always is just exciting. It's a great way to stay in touch as friends. And, yes. you know, I do miss you. Like when we don't record, I'm like, what's missing in my life? It's Darren. We're actual friends. It's it's yeah, we are good friends. Well, I don't know if I'd say for friends, but, you know. As we teased on um, NMR, today yeah. we have an, an old friend of a case. That's right. We have actually done this episode, uh, the case, we should say, on Martinis and Murder way back in the day. But yes, we've done a couple episodes that we've done before because maybe there's some new information. I think, you know, even us as just podcasters. Yeah, feels yeah. Good. And I think, you know, we've obviously advanced in our careers as true crime producers and podcasters as well. And maybe we have a different perspective that we didn't have back in the day, you know, so I think it's an a good way to refresh and uh, share some, some, some new information, if you will. So Darren, it's nice to have you back. Hello thank to you. all the sussy radishes that are watching on Hello Patreon. Hello to sussies, and thank you for your patience as my voice recovers. Yeah, and by the way, I started to get a little something over the weekend, and I was like, if my voice goes next, we're just gonna <laughs> we're gonna Blame be in me. big trouble. But Bravo's at fault. Bravo's at fault, and I think I'm I think I'm good, so I can get through the very beginning of this episode. You ready to go, Darren? I think I'm ready, ready, baby. All right, between December 1989 and September 199 day. Okay. The state of Florida would be sent into a panic as men began going missing, later being found dead on the side of the highway. Now, in each of these cases, a wealthy middle-aged man would seemingly disappear out of thin air while driving on the Florida highway. In total, seven men would be killed at the hands of a vicious new serial killer stalking the Florida highways. While the state has seen its fair share of serial killers in the past, this one would prove to be unlike any that had ever come before that. I mean, we've heard of the Florida man, you know, which I think was happening even before the 1990 days. Florida man has been a thing since Florida's existed. Since Florida became a state. That's right. Throughout history, killers have preyed on the vulnerable, most commonly being sex workers, especially in Florida. But what happens when that narrative gets flipped? What happens when they... The prey becomes the predator, actually. Mm -hmm. And this was the case of America's most infamous female serial killer, Eileen Wardos. Um, Eileen Carol Pittman was born on February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. Eileen's mother, Diane, had been married to her father, Leo Pittman, when she was only 14 years old. Wow. Yeah. And almost nine months exactly from their wedding, Diane gave birth to her first son, Keith, with the arrival of her daughter, Eileen, following 11 months later. And I do think, you know, that young age to be going through so much of this stuff, I think it really is a factor um, throughout the rest of this case. You know, like young parents at that age. I mean, obviously, 
14, I mean, you have to wonder what kind of, you know, sexual misconduct was happening between these two people. You know, it's horrific to say the and least. Not, and not to jump ahead. I just wanted to make sure I was right about this. Hence me um, researching. Googling? But yeah. um, when Charlize Theron plays Eileen Warnos in Monster right. and you watch at how like her transformation, if you've ever seen that yes. movie, I mean, it's dark, a lot of sexual abuse, just has one of the hardest right. scenes to watch in all of cinematic mm. history, in my personal opinion. Um, and she plays it so well. And this kind of gives you that just mm. how dark her life was kind of from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. She won the Oscar, I believe, for that role. She did. Didn't she? I believe yeah. she did. I did I ever tell did. you about the time I was at, we were at, uh, just a quick side tangent, we were at South by Southwest. Yeah, you were with me. Do you remember we walked by Charlize Theron? Like, she was just, like, walking in the crowd. And oh, she yeah. was yeah, 10 yeah, feet yeah, yeah, yeah. tall. And we were just like, oh. We were like, oh. Yeah. She just left like a, a barbecue joint. We we're like, I did that. Charlize. I did that one. <laughs> I did that one time with Uma Thurman on the street. And I was just like, oh, there she is. Oh, there she is. <laughs> There goes Uma Thurman. Yeah. By the way, I love Uma Thurman. She's no, amazing. I mean, obviously. Amazing. And Charlize, for that matter. But by the way, Charlize was very like, like you could tell people were noticing her and she was just like kind and smiling and kind of waving she's to people. Just such a gem. Gorgeous person in the yeah, world. That's just fine. other than that. Nothing else yeah. to worry about. Anyway, so <clears throat> as I said, almost nine months exactly from their wedding, Diane had given birth to her first son, Keith, with the arrival of her daughter, Eileen, uh, about 11 months later. So- However, by the time Eileen was born, her mother had already filed from divorce from her husband. Okay. And remember. And her mother's at like 16 at this point. Yeah. At this point, she's super young. Exactly. And Leo had suffered tremendously with his mental health and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So this is kind of the background leading up to some of mental Mental unwellness, um, you know, probably maybe lack of access to fixing that. Divorce. Right. Um, you know, having children kind of early in life, all of these things are kind of calculated to it being yeah. just hard and tough. After yeah. his divorce, he would separate entirely from the family, Leo, that is, finding himself in and out of both mental facilities and jail. So just yeah. tough. Ultimately, his life came to an end when he committed suicide while serving a sentence in jail for kidnapping and raping a seven-year-old. Uh, see what I mean? Just so tragic. Yeah, Diane was still essentially a child herself when she found herself divorced and attempting to raise two babies on her own. Again, she's in her teens still. After a few years of trying her best to be a mother, Diane realized she was unable to do it and asked her parents, Lori and Britta Warnos, to adopt her two small children. And let me just say, don't care about the background, don't need to know much. That has to be, and I don't have children, the hardest decision a parent can possibly make and usually the smartest because maybe she cares so much about her kids. I hope she cares so much about her kids that she recognizes that she's not capable. Yeah. You know, and asking for help. I, I feel like that's so hard to do and, you know, yeah. like give it up to her for being able to do that. Yeah. You have to have so much self-awareness um, yeah. and a lot of at that age. Yeah. yeah. At that age. And to know that maybe, you know, you're not going to be able to provide for the child. Like that's right. very selfless in that regard. At least we hope that's what her intentions were, of course. Well, Laurie and, and Laurie, Britta, sorry to interrupt. Laurie and yeah. Britta, are those two women? Do we know this? Laurie and Britta? No, like Laurie is a man's name usually, okay. like All even right. in Little Women, Laurie, but okay. um, I don't know. All right. Why don't you look? I, I, don't I want to look it up. I was like, does she yeah. have lesbian parents? And we never. But Britta, maybe? I don't know. Well, Laurie and Britta. I knew a Britta that would when be I was cool. young. I'll look That'd it up. Cool. Okay. 
Lori and Britta, while they agreed, this proved to be an incredibly unsafe environment. By the accounts of both Eileen and Keith, the children were both brutally beaten. Their grandfather, Laurie, was especially cruel towards Eileen. According to Eileen, when her grandfather wanted to punish her, he would lock her in his homemade sauna room for hours with the heat blasting. As high as it would go. What the fuck? That sounds horrible. And by the way, I did look it up. Laurie is, in fact, a man. Yeah, the Laurie Jacob but... Warnos. Yep, exactly. Um, I, I never, I, I always thought, you know, it's like Lindsay is like kind of both. Yeah, there's some. Sure if Laurie yeah. was like strictly men. Anyway, yeah. he would repeatedly tell her she was worthless and a mistake and allegedly would sexually assault her. I mean, how could this person not grow up like this? Right. In the face of this abuse, Eileen's only comfort came in the presence of her older brother. The two had always been exceptionally close. However, around this time, their relationship began to taking a disturbing turn. Allegedly, Eileen and Keith shared an incestuous relationship. Several classmates of theirs had reported them to teachers for touching each other in inappropriate ways, accusations which were quickly swept under the rug and ignored by their family. And which at the age of just, all the time, sadly. Yeah, they're ignoring them or whatever. Yeah. And at the age of 11, Eileen began trading sexual favors with older men Ugh. in exchange for cigarettes, food, and drugs. She obviously had no other choice. In her teen years, she'd been assaulted by her grandfather's friend, resulting in her becoming pregnant. And she carries the baby to term. She gave birth in a woman's shelter, and the baby was placed up for adoption. Generational trauma, you can just see it kind of unfold here. Shortly after the loss of her child, she'd be faced with another major loss when her grandmother would die of liver, liver failure. The death of his wife only fueled her grandfather's rage and even said that he blamed Eileen for her death. This dispute would result in him kicking Eileen out at the mere age of 15 years old. Yeah, I mean, imagine going through all this before you're even 16 years old. I mean, that's just so tragic in so many ways. But without anywhere else to turn to, Eileen began living in the woods. She slept in an, excuse me, she slept in an abandoned car and turned to sex work in order to make enough money to feed herself. Without any parental figures to guide and support her, Eileen was so drawn excuse me, was soon drawn into a life of crime and uncertainty. She was desperate not only to get away from her troubled past, but also to get out of the treacherous Michigan cold, which you don't have to go through a lot to want to get out of Michigan. Let me just tell you that. I, Our friend Ian lives in Michigan, Darren, who is a big fan of the show and listens and, uh, you know, and everything. And, you know, we talk from time to time, like, you, I would never do this. I could never live in Michigan. I don't know how people do it. It's it is cold. beautiful on the lakes, though. I mean, it's like Chicago and people are like, I can't live in the winter. Oh, it's I'm like, yeah, gorgeous. But during the summer, it's gorgeous. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you need a snowbird in L.A., I guess. I, that's my. Th- oh, and I will be doing that, by the way, now that you live there. So make room. Make room for yeah. me. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. 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 Sounds great. Can't wait to see you. Anyway, living outside had been tremendously difficult, of course, especially when the bitter winter be- uh, weather began to roll in. She decided to start over somewhere new and hitchhike over 1,000 miles west to Colorado, where she would live for approximately two years. And during her time there, Eileen would have her first run in with the law when she was arrested for driving under the influence and recklessly firing a 22 caliber gun. Wow. In 1976, 20-year-old Eileen would be on the road yet again as she hitchhiked all the way to Florida. She's like, I'm snowbirding it's going to take me years and thousands of miles yeah, but i'm going to do it, it. Yeah. yeah and that's where she met 69 year old lewis gatz now lewis was extremely wealthy and he was flattered by receiving attention from a young woman like eileen men 
Yeah, right. And Eileen was very, like, you know, traditionally attractive, I would say, in her early 20s. You know, there's photos of her. You can go and Google yes. them. She, you know, she was kind of that stereotypical blonde, you know, really attractive woman. At least the pictures I've seen. I hope I'm accurate on that. Anyway, the two began dating and soon after were actually married. And their marriage was short-lived, however, because Eileen soon began showing a much, much more violent side of herself. Lewis was constantly needing to pick up his wife from the local bar where, where she would find herself scrapping and fighting with the other patrons. Kind of one of those people that, you know, my guess is she's probably taking a lot of her childhood and, and life story out on other people, which tends to happen when people drink. One of these bar fights even resulted in Eileen spending a short stunt in jail. Lewis, however, you know, was pushed to his limit only nine weeks into their marriage when during an argument, Eileen began beating him uh, with his own walking cane. That's an interesting weapon, weapon of choice of all things. Lewis filed, of course, a restraining order against his wife, and their marriage was annulled in July of 1976. Their annulment came only days after Eileen had received the worst news of her life. Her beloved brother, Keith, had passed away from throat cancer. So Eileen's life, if you haven't picked up on it yet, is not going... uh, Yeah, it's not going... This is no storybook situation here. Well, his life insurance policy was awarded to her with $10,000, which, of course, in her situation, as you might expect, she blew through in a matter of just a few weeks. So really tragic. Horrible. The one person she loved in her life, you know. Yeah, or could rely on was a support system. Like John said, I mean, she blew... Blew through $10,000 in just a matter of weeks. The money was spent frivolously on guns, drugs, cars. Someone who doesn't have an idea of how to have a stable life, obviously. Right. Eileen had experienced severe poverty for the majority of her life. And for the first time, she had a considerable amount of cash. She began thinking of ways to maintain this new lifestyle after the money was gone. Sex work had been enough for her to survive, but she began striving for much more. And in order to make more money, Eileen realized she had to up the stakes of her crimes. Her solution was armed robbery. Okay, not the solution I think we should all look for, but as someone who's been through obvious, the ringer. Yeah, you know, maybe, you know, kind of a no choice. She didn't even know there would be other options. Right. And by the um, way, I want to say we're not by any means saying, you know, excusing this kind of behavior or these kind of crimes. I'm just simply speaking on both for both of us here, I think trying to justify the understanding of why somebody would do something like this. And when you've gone through the types of things she's gone through, it's sort of par for the course. That's really right. Exactly. Like she kind of never had a shot um, to start using a gun. She had purchased using the insurance money from her brother. Eileen began mugging people and soon upgraded to robbing convenience stores. Unfortunately Mm -hmm. for her, she was not very good at it. And in 1981, she was arrested for robbing a shop of $35 and two packs of cigarettes she spent over a little over a year in jail for that and then was released. She'd have several other meetings with the law over the next decade, including charges for grand theft auto, robbery, forging checks, attempted assault. And in 1986, Eileen would meet whom she described as her soulmate, Tyria Moore. And uh, Tyria was a hotel maid who Eileen had met at a lesbian bar in Daytona Beach. Mm-hmm. The two became inseparable. You've been there. And so, uh, I invented it. Yeah. yeah. Um, And soon moved in together. Eileen was completely infatuated with her and wanted to spoil her as much as she could. Oh, this is like her first chance at happiness. I know. know. Like, I know how it ends and it's just like so sad. I know. I know. And, you know, something else we should maybe mention here, too, as gay people, you know, what I've known or experienced, not personally, but I've seen it happen is, 
you know, maybe Eileen was gay her, you know, obviously she was gay to some degree her whole life, but you wonder how much of that she was suppressing. Sure. How that manifests itself into or sexual assault, how that could have yeah. like, you know, warped something in her <laughs> mind too. Like you just don't know. I mean, there's so many different factors. You don't yeah. know what she was suppressing. She couldn't be yourself. Yeah. And you know, I've seen it manifest itself personally and you hear of stories about the way it manifests itself in other people. And sometimes it is, uh, it manifests itself into, the negative, aggressive energy yeah. of of crime. So let's think about that too as we talk more. Well, their main source of income came from Eileen's sex work, although Tria was always eager to help Eileen in her other money-making schemes. Eileen had a whole orchestration of petty crimes she needed to maintain their lifestyle. But these crimes would soon become deadly. On November like some 30- people do DoorDash. She had other things going on. Okay, She had other things, yeah. yeah. On November 30th, 1989, I was only one and a half. Eileen was doing sex work in Daytona Beach when she was picked up by 51-year-old Richard Mallory. Richard was single, he was wealthy, and the owner of a successful electronic store. After picking her up, he drove her to a secluded area where they began drinking, hanging out. Now, somewhere during the interaction, Eileen pulled out her gun and fired four shots into Richard's head and torso. Yeah, so it sounds like maybe he had something that she was looking for and didn't want to really deal with it. So Sounds something fishy. Yeah. Two bullets were found lodged in his lungs, which are credited as the cause of his death. She then took the cash in his wallet, as well as a few electronics that she found in the car, which she later pawned. Richard's car was discovered first, only a couple days after the incident, but his body would remain hidden for nearly two full weeks. His body was found several miles from the vehicle, hidden in a wooded area. Now, it's actually unknown what exactly made Eileen decide to kill Richard, But his death was only the beginning, as most of you may know about the story. Several months later, in May of 1990, she would strike again. And on May 19th, she was picked up by a man named David Spears. David was 43 years old and a machine operator by trade, and he had been traveling up the I-75 when he saw Eileen walking on the side of the road. David pulled over to let her in, and soon she was offering him sexual favors. He agreed. This is something I would never do. I would never see someone. I might ask, you know, do you need help? You mean to call someone? But I'm not sure I would ever pick someone up. That seems a little. I know. I, you know, we've talked about like this type of stuff on the show before where I feel like us sitting here in our mid 30s, some of us a little later than others. um, Only in our mid. Some of us only in our mid. But, you know, you know, in 2023, we know not to do that, but it might be because at this time we were learning about people hitchhiking and doing things that, you know, I think in the seventies, you know, were maybe a little more common and less, yeah. even less no, totally. dangerous they at definitely the time, were. you know, definitely. So that is something to think about, but he agreed to her price by the way. So he drove to a secluded area uh, where he then began to undress. And while he was busy undressing, Eileen snuck out of the car, walked over to the driver's side window and opened fire. And just like her first victim, Eileen dumped the vehicle several miles away where she left his body. And at this point, don't you start to wonder, like, she clearly is not feeling any kind of emotion towards this. Like, she is. It's a way of survival. Yes, that's my point. This is a way to keep her lifestyle with her and her partner. Yeah. That's what she's thinking about. And while she is held responsible for her actions, there are certainly there's no excuse for it, but there is an explanation of why she's doing this. Precisely. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, it's almost like methodical. It's like, Oh, here's another guy. He has money. Got to get rid of him. Like, you know, it's just just a way to maintain that. Maintain something. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, by the time David's vehicle was discovered with a flat tire on the side of the highway, he had already been declared a missing person. Along the side of the road, they found the license plate as well as several of David's belongings. Interesting that they that Eileen seemed to have taken the license plate as well. Yeah, I wonder if so she couldn't be tracked or it would be harder to register the car. Something like that. David was shot a total of six times and his nude body was left in the woods to be discovered over two weeks later on June 1st. This was uh, this time Eileen wasted no time in between her attacks. And by the time David's body was discovered, Eileen had already claimed another victim. So she's going quick. And I think the benefit here is that she's a woman. So I don't think people are really looking no one's out for probably women. looking at her. Yeah. You know, she can kind of hide in plain sight. And I think it's probably easy to have victims because usually the woman tends to be the victim and tend to be less strong. So I think people are underestimating her yeah. and that she's using to her to her advantage. And I'm wondering if investigators are noticing. I mean, we know that David's body was nude. Um, I don't know about the exact other details so far, but there, there seems to be at least some capacity of sexual connections here with these violent crimes. So I'm just wondering, like, OK, maybe they're not looking at women, but, you know, at what point do they start thinking, OK, these men can't all be the result of stereotypical hetero men right. getting naked, you know, frankly. Right. Well, on May 31st, 40-year-old Charles Cascadden was driving home from a trip to St. Louis to visit his elderly mother. On his way back, he spotted Eileen hitchhiking and decided to stop and let her in. By now, Eileen was developing a ritualistic pattern to her killings, right. which is what we're saying. Like others before him, Charles was seduced by Eileen, who convinced him to drive somewhere private. She then shot him nine times before removing his body from the vehicle and driving off. Eileen was gaining an alarming amount of momentum with her killings, averaging a murder every two weeks. I mean, this is this is like a machine. That's what I mean. Yeah, the pattern is wild. Another thing that's interesting is how many times she's shooting each of these guys. It's Multiples. not a one. And, yeah, it's not right. a one and done situation. It's not self defense. Definitely not self defense. She's making sure they are dead. You know, yeah. six times, nine times with this. You know, I just find that interesting. Her violent cravings would only become more insatiable from here on out as she had finally perfected her method, mm. or at least she thought. Perhaps her three previous killings had lured her into a mistaken sense of competence, maybe even confidence, because on right. her next hunt, she'd leave behind some crucial evidence. In June of 1990, Peter Symes left his house in Jupiter, Florida. Peter was a 65-year-old Christian missionary who had set out to drive up to New Jersey. So that's about a day's drive. Yeah, that's In his back time. seat was a stack of over 50 Bibles, which he planned on passing out to people he met along his travels. Mm. That fateful day, his Bible would be of little use to him. When he came in contact with Eileen, she had set up her usual trap as she was hitchhiking on I-75, waiting for her next victim to pick her up. When Peter picked her up, it is unknown whether it was to seek her sexual services or if he saw it as an opportunity of outreach to spread his religion. But either way, what is known for certain is that Peter was never seen again and his body never was uncovered. After killing him, Eileen wow. drove off in his vehicle where she then went to pick her up pick up her girlfriend and the two pawned any valuables they found in the car and then used that money to buy drugs and alcohol. So just keeping up the fix yep. to celebrate. They decided they want to drive to Daytona beach to see a firework display. And while they were driving, uh, Taria was speeding and lost control of the vehicle, which resulted in it flipping. Yeah. So even more chaos, you know, coming into the, Seriously. into this. Well, the two women fled the scene unharmed. However, a passerby witnessed them walking away from the crash site. Inside the vehicle, police also found a number of pawn shop receipts for various items. 
Each ticket contained an item which had been stolen from one of the previous murder victims. Oh, man. So now, yeah, she's really getting kind of sloppy here. Upon further forensic analysis, a handprint was found on one of the door handles, which would later be identified as Eileen. Now, while investigators were finally able to catch a break and get some helpful evidence, Eileen was far from finished. On July 31st, a salesman from Ocala named, or is it Ocala? No, Ocala, named Mm -hmm. Troy Burris would, that just threw me for a minute because I was thinking of Troy from Real Housewives of Atlanta and Candy Burris. Okay. I was like, Troy Burris. What a weird connection. Yeah. Uh, Check out our BravoCon recap, by the way, uh, on NMR. Um, So a man named Troy Burris would make the deadly mistake of picking up Eileen while he was out on a delivery run. She should, she seduced him, made him drive to a secluded area, and then, as you can expect, shot him twice at point blank mm. range. Now, Troy's body was discovered in the woods five days later. And during the month of August, Eileen decided to lay low. But in, se- in early September, she'd resurfaced to claim yet another victim. Wow. On September 11th of that year, Eileen was picked up off of the I 75 highway by Charles Dick Humphreys. Dick was a retired Air Force major as well as chief of police. Okay. Damn. Yeah. During his career, he specialized in investigating child abuse cases. After Eileen was picked up. I wonder why he picked her up, though. Yeah, you do wonder that, right? Like, maybe. Maybe it's Good Samaritan. Maybe. Yeah, I guess we could never really know for sure. Well, we know that. You know, uh, after Eileen was picked up, she soon fell into her familiar routine. And after driving off into a secluded area under the guise of sex, it sounds like Eileen became violent. At some point, Dick got out of the car and apparently attempted to flee. He was shot several times. And it also makes you wonder if he's chief of police. He's probably armed, right? Like you would think he'd be armed. Unless he's off duty. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Well, he was shot several times. And he staggered a few feet away from the car before collapsing and receiving one final shot to the chest. Really tragic and horrible way to go. By the end of 1990, several counties from all over Florida had begun putting the pieces together and realizing that there were striking similarities in these cases. Task forces, baby. Yeah, a dedicated task force was assembled to begin investigating the idea of a serial killer rather than treating each murder as an isolated incident which they had been doing so far. And I mean, maybe because we're podcasters and we've told a, th- a thousand stories, but it's like, guys, this these are all very similar situations here. Yeah, and I don't know how many it takes to kind of realize that pattern, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Yeah, especially in the, seven, or, you know, in the 90s at this point. Well, it was only a matter of time before their search would bring them directly to Eileen, but not before she could claim one final victim. November of 1990, a 62-year-old police reservationist named Walter Gino Antonio was found partially nude and shot several times. His car was discovered several days later, abandoned south of Daytona Beach, and the MO fit perfectly with the other killings, and the special task force assigned to the case had never been more confident that they were dealing with an actual serial killer here. With little to go off besides the similarities in the killings, police turned to the only case where nobody was ever uncovered, Peter Symes. Police got back in touch with the witness who had claimed to see two women leaving the scene where Peter's car had crashed. Based on the description they gave, police were able to compile a composite sketch, which was then spread throughout the media. And every news station in Florida showed the sketch of these two women. Only hours after the sketch was released, police received their first tip naming Eileen and Taria as the two women in the sketch. Wow. Several tips would come in giving their names specifically. 
Upon running the handprint found in Peter's car, it came back as positive identification for Eileen. Oh, this just goes to show too. how tech is really starting to yeah. uh, pick up here. And by January, investigators were confident that they had their killer, but did not have enough physical evidence to bring Eileen in, as the only scene where her DNA was found was the only case where no body was found either. Mm. And instead, they began concocting a plan to get Eileen to confess by enlisting the help of her girlfriend. That's right. That's a great way to, uh, you know, get the information you might want from somebody. Yeah, pit them against each other, I guess. That's right. Well, on January 9th, 1991, Eileen was arrested under a previous warrant while she was at a bar in Daytona. Tyria was found while Eileen was in custody and investigators proposed their barter. They offered her immunity to help elicit a confession out of Eileen, which she agreed to. Damn, yo, no one's got Eileen's (laughs) back here. No. No one. Shit. Yeah, Tyria worked closely with the police over the next week, and she was given a motel room where police would carefully monitor her calls. I feel like I do remember the scene from Monster a little bit. Yeah. Like, I, that that movie is so old now, but I just, I kind of do remember this. Um, Tyria made several phone calls to Eileen, begging for her to come clean with authorities. And I'm wondering at this point if Eileen has any idea that, you know, she's probably going to get set up, right? Like, isn't that I, what we I expect? Don't, I don't because this is the one person she trusts yeah that's true you know and she's implicated with it too so she might not have thought she flipped you know that's true that's true well finally on january 16th while on the phone eileen confessed to murdering and robbing the men she pleaded that she had only killed them because they attempted to rape her and eileen was arrested the same day for the string of murders while she was willingly confessed well, she willingly confessed to her crimes and remained adamant that the men each had either raped her or attempted to rape her. And in court, this argument was not received well, and she was awarded a total of six death sentences for the murders of Richard Mallory, David Spears, Char- Charles Cascadin, Troy Burris, Charles Humphreys, and Walter Antonio. And you know what? I'm sure if she had shot them once and then fled, you know, taking their car, shooting them multiple times, multiple times. There's this certainly, yeah. It's, it just doesn't probably hold up in court. That's um, what I was going to say, yeah. No formal charges were ever placed for the murder of Peter Symes as the whereabouts of his body still remain a mystery today. And her legacy of being one of America's most prolific serial killers has been immortalized in the form of film and TV. Obviously, most fam- famous is Monster, uh, starring Charlize Theron as Eileen and Christina Ricci as the character based on her girlfriend. Oh, yeah. I forgot Christina Ricci was Tyria. Yeah. And uh, Eileen herself did numerous on-camera interviews from her jail cell as well. She was executed on October 9th, 2002 by lethal injection. She refused to have a final meal and instead chose a hot cup of coffee. Not decaf coffee, though, John. Just <laughs> That's that. what I'm drinking, everybody. That's all she wanted. So yeah. Um, yeah. just a terrible story, I think, from from start to finish. Yeah. And, you terrible know, life. I think over the years as true crime podcasters and folks that work around true crime, the the understanding is that not that you ever sympathize with anyone who's killed this many people, but you do understand based on her background and her upbringing, like she had what, no choice. Yeah. And the lifestyle that she was forced to live and, and what happens in that scenario. And, you know, it's really tragic. And I think it's an injustice of our, of the bigger system, you know, of, of the yeah. American culture and what was happening at that point, especially when it comes to mental health. So yeah. hopefully we're all advancing in those ways. Um, Darren, where should What's people in- talk to us? Yeah. You know? Shout us out at Carpe Darren at Jay Thrasher, of course, Shaken and Disturbed podcast fans on Facebook. And of course our Patreon page where we are in the discourse, my friends. Uh, let's end on some, go ahead, John. Oh, no, I was just going to say all of the which all these links are in our show notes if you're looking to click right away. You know what I mean? 
that is true. There you go. We need a we need a quick click click. Uh, <laughs> let's end on some listener shout outs though, John. That's right. I have to give a shout out to my one of my favorite people in the world, my little cousin, Aurora. Uh, Aurora, her, what a good name. It's not a great name. And her coworker, Allison, who's a big fan of the show, Darren, and um apparently met Aurora after she had been listening to her show. And and her friend Allison is like, Are you are you related to John? Like, and was like fangirling out. So I thought that was so funny. So I shout out to Aurora that. and shout out to you, Allison. Thank you for listening. And thanks uh, for, for you guys being such big fans. Yeah, thank and by you the way, both of you. Yeah, and by the way, Aurora, hope I see you over the holidays. Love you. You know, yeah, just Aurora, a little shout come out. To my, come to my holiday. Come to mine. <laughs> come with no, the cards. No, come to mine. Come to mine. Come to mine. Yeah. Well, Brittany showed her favorite beanie baby, which is, of course, Claude the Crab, in our Facebook group. And we love <laughs> that you guys connected with our beanie stories. I mean, yeah. it is truly the, th- the thread that, threads the needle here i mean it's going it 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 brings us all together and no john my mom did not give them away on halloween well you said she was going to be giving them away i think because you had convinced her maybe there was money in there and so (laughs) she put her thanksgiving yeah i'm going through it all and i'm just going to try and list things on ebay so look out for that please do make make a small fortune and give me 20 percent. that's all i'm asking absolutely absolutely um and by the way you guys if you have a moment and the resources please do consider joining us on patreon we've put a lot of content up over the last couple of months and if you join our top tiers of susty radish you get this podcast episode ad free and in video form and let's give another wave to our susty radishes as we end this episode that's right so you can see our shining faces and it's a really great way if you are a big fan of the show to help us keep it going um, that is patreon.com slash shaken and disturbed, or you can check it out in our show notes. Darren, Absolutely. what a, what a great show. It's good to revisit, uh, an old classic, if you will. And yes, it is. And we wish everyone a happy and safe Thanksgiving this year. We'll be back on Sunday with a new episode, but have a very delicious and very safe travel, uh, Thanksgiving. It just, it just hit me that this week is the thing is Thanksgiving week. Then when this episode drops, how is Correct. that happening? Oh my goodness. It's insane. All right. It's All insane. Right. Check your freshies, everybody. You and know guys, I mean? check your brake pads on Thanksgiving. You don't need pants and you don't need a penis. Oh, there you go. There you go. See you next time. Bye. Bye.